ladies and gentlemen, this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Boy, are we are you in for a treat? You know, we we can learn so many things from uh, different people, and a few people really. The, the more you look at people today, um, sometimes it's hard to respect certain people. But I've got a lot of respect for our guest right now. His name is Abraham Bolden. If that name is not a household name, boy, it should be. And I'll tell you why. Mr. Bolden was the, uh, was actually the first Secret Service agent for the Presidential Protective Detail. That took place under, uh, the, uh, administration of John F. Kennedy. It's, his story is fascinating. I, I have his book. He wrote a book called The Echo from Dealey Plaza. And I'm just going to quote just really quickly before we bring him on. I just want to, I just want to tell you what, what, what this, what his appearance is not about. His appearance is not about who killed JFK. That's not what the, the, this is about. He's not going to say, and he can't say for certain who fired the fatal shots that day, November 22nd, 1963, but what he can say is the fact that he met John F. Kennedy and shook his hand, looked into his eyes in the basement of of a hotel when Kennedy was a, a senator running, preparing to run for, for a president. And, you know, when you look someone in the eyes, you can tell what's in their heart many times. And he sensed in his heart, as many people did, that uh, he that Kennedy understood the troubles of the common man and shared the pain of the downtrodden and oppressed people. Don't forget, this was a time of civil rights, of civil strife, of, of of racial tension and riots and such. You go back to the fifties. My earliest memory, and, and I, I I don't know if I've ever told this on air. My earliest memory of that time, not well of that time, was I was traveling. My, my parents were traveling. Uh, and we were in Atlanta, and I was a young boy. And I, I told my dad, I, I, I've got to go to the bathroom, you know. So he said, okay. And I saw a, a sign. I, I I don't remember it with precision. Again, I was young, young boy. And I started walking to the bathroom, and he grabbed me. He said, no, you can't go there. I said, well, it's a bathroom, you know. <laughs> Why not? No, your bathroom's over here. And I didn't understand it because, see, back then, they had different bathrooms for quote, colored people, and for whites. That was the time that, it was during that time that Abraham Bolden served as the, on the presidential protection detail for John F. Kennedy. And he did so at, at personal cost that he's going to tell us about. Um, he's got an amazing story. And I don't, I don't want to take any more of his time up, but, uh, his book is called The Echo from Dealey Plaza. If you want information about, we'll say, number one, a plot that is not really understood or told, that's the book to get. But if you want a book about information about the time and about the events leading up to the assassination, as well as a very inspirational to- uh, story, it's the book to get as well. I learned more from the Echo from Dealey Plaza uh, than, than a lot of so-called expert JFK books combined. But it was a different sense of learning. Mr. Bolden, thank you so much for joining us tonight. 
Thank you for inviting me, Mr. Ackman. Uh, call me Doug, sir. Uh, okay, and, Doug. Ah, uh, man, what an incredible story you have written in your book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza. And folks, you can, uh, get his book right off, just go to HagmanReport.com and click on the link to his book or in the program description. Links all over the place. It's available on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Uh, but by way of introduction, you were, you were born in 1935 to, uh, uh to, to strict parents. January 1st, by the way, happy birthday, recent, recent birthday. No, no, January 19th is my birthday. Oh, January 19th, yeah. I'm sorry. And, and then they put another president in an office the next day. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Always. All right. Gotcha. Well, in advance, happy birthday. Better to be early than late anyway. But, but okay, so. So yeah, you know, I'm gonna just let you tell your story if you don't mind. You've told it so many times and with such grace before. Uh, go ahead and tell your story about your upbringing and how you how you came to be the first African American Secret Service agent on the uh, presidential protection detail. Well, you have already given a um, um, forward. You might as well say to the book the Echo from Dealey Plaza and. Uh, it does contain quite a bit of information concerning the assassination of the president. And more importantly, there were some procedures and efforts leading up to that assassination on November the 22nd that the American people should be aware of. Now, one thing the American people must know the truth concerning what happened on November the 22nd because in my estimation, that uh, date announced a change in the direction that America was going. It was a horrible incident. It was a well-planned incident, and it has consequences even in our electoral processes up to the minute. America, that was the time that America changed direction. And I don't know if we'll ever recover the direction that the President Kennedy was taking us. Now, I was born, as I said, on January the 19, 1935, in East St. Louis, Illinois. East St. Louis at that time was just like any other southern state. It, uh, it uh, was north, but in Illinois, here in East St. Louis, Illinois, where I was born, it was just like living in Mississippi. We had uh, separate high schools. There were signs that were posted in most of your stores that were uh, color and white. We had a division in the in the sections in our library. Jobs were very plentiful, but they were of a degraded status so far as the black people were concerned. If you were not a teacher or a preacher, uh, then you were a laborer. Now, my father did everything that he could possible to give us a good education. He was very strict when it came to that. He wouldn't buy us anything for foolishness. However, anything that was educational, my father and my mother would make a sacrifice and make sure that we had it. When, when I was growing up, it kind of concerned me in East St. Louis about the crime problem that we were having all the way back then, and I'm talking about in the 1940s now, when I began the grade school. 
there were a lot of cuttings. There were combats between the races, and there were fights among each other in the African-American neighborhoods. And this sort of concerned me even as a young child. And it made such an impression on me that I set out at that very time before I was 12 years old. In my subconscious, I wanted to find out what could be done to somewhat stem the tide in which this uh, country was going and the crime problem that we're facing even now today. So I... Go ahead. No, I I just... You you know, I... This is such a rich... Although... um, This is a rich part of our history, an important part of our history, and I'm glad you're laying this out because a lot of our listening audience has, you know, the demographics don't bear out the experiences that you had. And I just want to say thank you for laying this out, laying the groundwork out, because, uh, you know what, I never want to see us go back to that time period ever again. And... uh, you just said some important things. I'm not going to interrupt you anymore, sir. I apologize. You keep going because this is so important. No, that's, that's all right. That's all right. Will the audience uh, have an opportunity to call in because some things I uh, am going to say, maybe they would like to have questions. Will the audience have an opportunity to call in? What we'll do is is this. Um, we, we had a recent uh, malfunction, a computer malfunction. What we'll do is this. We're going to open, folks, questions to studio at Hagman and Hagman.com. Any questions for our guest, Abraham Bolden, send to studio at Hagman and Hagman.com. You know the routine, folks. You know the routine. I will ask him on the air. How's that, uh, Mr. Bolden? Yes, that's fine. That's fine. Right. But to get back to what I was, I was saying, there were... You might as well say monitors or, or people who were interested in the welfare or the advancement of my people as I was being raised up. And two of those uh, people were happened to be policemen, Lucius Hogan, who was a detective with the St. Louis Police Department, and Leo J. Gooden. Now, these were men who were masters at guiding young men and who gave us an idea and an impetus to want to be something in life. And never we'll forget those uh, men. Now, I studied music. When my when you turn nine years old in the Bolden household, you had to take music lessons. So I took piano lessons like my sisters and brothers did and at the age of about 12 years old I began to play the trumpet all the time I had this yearning in the back of my mind to want to do something to help mankind and I became a very religious young man at an early age and I began to study the Bible and other religious material in an effort to find out why man was losing, it seemed to me that they were losing their mind. They were losing a great portion of the love that one would expect between human beings. 
as I said, I became a very good trumpet player. Now, on my way to becoming a trumpet player, my brother was in the Lincoln High School band. And he played the tuba. So one day we were going to a band practice, a late afternoon band practice. And he would let me carry the bail of his tuba while he carried the other part that had the baths. It was one of those big wraparound bass horns that a lot of people call. And I would go to the practice and I would listen to the band members practice. Now this is very important because when we went to the band practice, there was a young man who was seated in the corner and he was also a trumpet player. Dark skinned, wavy haired young man, about 16 or 17 years old. And when Mr. Buchanan, who was the band director, when he would have a pause in the practice of what they were doing, of the music that they were playing, this young man kept playing. And it sort of disturbed Mr. Buchanan. So after that the band practice was over, I was on my way home with my brother, and I asked my brother, I said, Dan, that was his name, Daniel, who is that guy in the, in the uh, corner who keeps playing? when Mr. Buchanan stops everyone else from playing. And my brother said, oh, that guy, oh, he, that guy's name is Miles Davis. Now, you know who Miles Davis was. Isn't that right? Are you familiar <laughs> with Miles Davis? And he became one of the greatest trumpet players the world has ever known. Yep. And so I walked over to Miles and I told him, you know, I, will, I play the trumpet. I want to play the trumpet. And, and Miles never said a word. He just turned and went on and did what he was doing and, and uh, walked away. But whoever would have thought that uh, Miles Davis would uh, become one of the premier trumpet players in the world. But after that, I went off and graduated from uh, junior high school in the Lincoln High School won quite a few medals in music. But this idea of becoming a, a, a person learned in the psychology of the, of the criminal and want to do something to help the race of people, all races of people, not just black people. We had white criminals there. Buster Workman was one of the biggest gangsters uh, in East St. Louis, and he was... Uh, mixed up with uh, Mayor English, and uh, they were just running things, and it, it was a hood type of town, a very fast type of town. Mm -hmm. So after I graduated, uh, I got a scholarship to two universities. One was the Milliken University, and the other one was the Lincoln University in, in, uh, in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. So I chose Lincoln University because I want to be very close to the problem of my people and continue on the way. Well, I majored in music, and in 1956, I graduated cum laude uh, with a bachelor's degree in music composition. But as fate would have it, when I graduated, I moved back to East St. Louis, Illinois, 
And this nagging idea of becoming in police work or in criminal psychology just just kept uh, hammering at me. It was something that I just couldn't control. It was deep into my psychology to want to do something to benefit the people. So when I had a job offer to go to southern Missouri for a teaching experience, and my wife happened to be reading the Post-Dispatch, St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper, and she saw an ad in a paper where Pinkerton National Detective Agency was looking for a special agent. Well, knowing in that time, in 1955 and 56, there were no black Pinkerton National Detective Agents. So my wife, who was um, a longtime friend of mine, Barbara Louise Bolden, she talked me into going over and applying for the job at Pinkerton National Detective Agency. So I went over one Monday morning, and uh, I walked into the office, and I told a young uh, white girl who was sitting at the desk, I said, I want to apply for the job as a pink and the national detective agent. And she says, we're not hiring. And I showed her the clippings of the paper that my wife had insisted uh, that I take with me. And I pulled it out of my lapel pocket and handed it to her. She says, well, we're not hiring people like you. Well, I understood that I had been, as I said, raised in East St. Louis. It was very prejudiced, and St. Louis, Missouri was just across the river. As a matter of fact, it was, at that time, it was more prejudiced than East St. Louis, if anything could uh, be such. Wow. Yeah. Now, when she told me that she wasn't hiring people like me, I understood what she meant. But there happened to be a Mr. Murch, who was district director of the Secret Service from Michigan, from Detroit, Michigan. He was the district director, and he happened to be surveying the office in St. Louis at 705 Olive Street on the 12th floor. So he came out of the office, and he asked his secretary, he said, what's the problem here? And the young secretary told him that uh, I was looking for an application, but uh, there wasn't any jobs available. And Mr. Merch said, yes, there are. He said, send him into the office, give him an application, let him uh, fill out the application, and send him in the office to talk to me. And that's what happened. I went into the office, Mr. Merch hired me on the spot and told me to understand that I would be the first black Pinkerton National Detective agent and he wanted me to do a good job they sent me to school they prepared me on surveillance techniques and that began my career in police work and after spending a year with the Pinkerton National Detective agent I went into the Illinois State Police at the inducement of my wife, who happened to see another job in the East St. Louis Journal newspaper and said that the state police are hiring. So I went into the uh, the uh, state police. My wife always looked out for me, and if it hadn't been for her, I don't know what would have happened to me. But uh, 
Uh, she was a very diligent and, and sensitive person, very loving. So after I spent about four years on the Illinois State Police and the Illinois State Police Vice Squad, President Kennedy was a U.S. Senator, and he came to Peoria in order to give an address at the courthouse there. So as the president uh, gave an address, as I said, I was a, a young state trooper then, and I happened to be there, and he impressed me so much with his sincerity that when I had an opportunity to work with one of the Secret Service agents on one of the details, the vice details that I was uh, uh, assigned to do, I asked Mr. Fred Baskerman, who was the special agent in charge of the Springfield office, do they have any Negro Secret Service agents uh, in Washington, D.C.? He says, no, I don't think that they have a Negro Secret Service agent, but why don't you uh, make an application and see how it comes out? So that's what I did. I made an application, and on October the 30. Of a 1960, I was appointed a Secret Service agent and transferred from Peoria, Illinois, to Chicago, Illinois. Now, it was in Chicago, Illinois, that after President Kennedy won the election, he beat uh, President uh, Nixon by about 8,000 votes in Cook County, and that, uh, that allowed the President Kennedy to take the whole state and all the electoral votes. President Kennedy was scheduled to come to Chicago here on April the 28th of 1961 to McCormick Place, where he had a big political meeting going there in the convention room in order to thank Mayor Daley and his uh, goon squad, I mean his political workers, <laughs> for, <laughs> for getting out the vote. See, in Chicago, there was a saying at the time, vote early and vote often. <laughs> so, so it was a political process here that everybody knew about. But anyway, President Kennedy had won the election, so right away, he was coming to Chicago on April 28th of 1961 for this, this grand meeting. I was a new agent, the first African-American agent appointed, uh, and I was uh, stationed in Chicago, Illinois. Now, I ran into some segregation when I first came to Chicago as a United States Secret Service agent. Many of them were from the South. There were 13 of us assigned to the Chicago office. There were a few Southerners there that... Uh, really did not want me around as an agent. As a matter of fact, even the special agent in charge uh, didn't take to me very kindly. But anyway, what happened was this. When the president was, whenever he came to a different district other than Washington, D.C., whoever, whatever agents were assigned to that district would have to help with the protection of the president. Now, normally on the post where they assigned me at McCormick Place in front of a washroom, 
they would have a uniformed policeman because it wasn't a very important job. A plainclothes Secret Service agent's job normally would be one of more responsibility, but they replaced me on the first floor of McCormick Place and put me down by the washroom and put the the uniformed officer, Chicago police officer, at the door where I would have been, where the president would have had to pass right before me before that he would enter, enter the convention hall. So what they were actually trying to do was hide me and put me in a place where it would be slim to none chances of me meeting the president of the United States standing in front of a washroom. But as fate would have it at 8.30 p.m. on April the 28th, 1961, I heard all of the commotions of, uh, flow above me, and I knew from the door slamming and how the photographers were scampering about in the flashes of their camera lights that the president had arrived. And looking up the steps towards the entrance to McCormick Place, the convention room, I looked up and saw President Kennedy coming down the steps, surrounded by every political bigwig in Chicago and Cook County. The first thing that the president wanted to do when he came to McCormick Place was use the washroom and there I stood. So the president walked and came down the steps and he stopped right in front of me. He surprised me. He stopped right in front of me and asked me a question. He said, are you a Secret Service agent or are you one of Mayor Daly's specials, uh, Mayor Daly's finest? I said, I'm a Secret Service agent, Mr. President. President extended his hand and we shook hands. And one of the agents who were with him, uh, Dick Jordan, so that's Abraham Bolin. He's a new agent here. So Mr. Bolin, Mr. Bolin, I'm going to have to stop right there. We're at the bottom of the hour break. This is fascinating. We're going to pick it up right on the other side. You're listening to Abraham Bolden, author of The Echo from Dealey Plaza. I'll wait until you hear this, folks. Stay right where you're at. Unfiltered, you know. Ask and you shall receive. Uh, my goodness, uh, our guest is Abraham Bolden, the author of the Echo from Dealey Plaza. We already have. Uh, we, we've got questions coming in from people all across the United States and Canada, but get this: Central America, Germany, France, and Australia already lining up asking to ask questions uh, of our guest via our email studio at hagmanandhagman.com. I want to thank you for so much for your participation. Where uh apparently people never sleep, especially in Europe where it's late or early, depending on your way of thinking. But uh Abraham Bolden, the author of The Echo from Dealey Plaza. Oh, 
what a great, what a fantastic informational and inspirational read. To be sure, I own a copy, and I and I just uh, you won't find a, a, a wow. It's just a great book. And Mr. Bolden spent the first segment talking about uh, his early life, and of course, you know, the, it's a different time back then. Well, maybe not, as we see the racial tensions uh, uh, building again. But nonetheless, here here is a, a man who uh, went through Pinkerton security as an investigator, and, and then, of course, Illinois State Police. And then now he was the first African-American Secret Service agent. And they stationed him in Chicago in, in advance, uh, in preparation of... Uh, John F. Kennedy's appearance there in the basement bathroom. And wouldn't you know it, President Kennedy, upon arrival, used the restroom, had to use the restroom, the washroom. And it was in the basement, so he walked down the stairs. And who does he run into? Who does President John F. Kennedy run into but Abraham Bolden? That's where Mr. Bolden left off. I'm going to let him pick up right where he left off. Sir, go right ahead, and thank you so much for for staying with us and for telling your story. Thank you. So the president looked me in the eye, and he asked a question. said, Mr. Bolden, and that's what he called me from then on. Mr. Bolden, has there ever been a Negro assigned to the White House detail protecting the president? I said, not to my knowledge, Mr. Mr. President. He said, would you like to be the first? I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. And I just couldn't believe my ears. See, here was the President of the United States. I had seen him on TV I don't know how many times, and he was standing in front of me with this, this, this appearance of sincerity that he had, the warmness that he exuded around him, and and it was just magnificent because uh, the black people during that period of time uh, called Negroes, they loved President Kennedy because they, they saw a sincerity in President Kennedy and a hope for change in the direction that America was going. They thought that the solution to many of the problems would lie under the jurisdiction of President Kennedy if he could just get in office. So the president, uh, in shaking my hand, said, I look forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. I said, thank you, Mr. President. And on June the 6th of 1961, I was summoned to Washington, D.C. and became the first African-American assigned to the White House detail, Secret Service detail in Washington, D.C., now, that was a great accomplishment uh, for me and my people during that time because it just so happened we were having the freedom bus rides going on. They were lynching uh, people in Mississippi. They were burning them alive. It seems as if the, the entire United States of America was aflame with racial hate and divide. And here I was walking into the White House making history at the impetus of the President of the United States. But when I arrived at the White House, I was not received very gracefully. There were Southerners surrounding the President who openly 
talked about him in very dis disparageable ways. They called him different names. They called him a nigger lover. They said that uh, the president was ruining the country because he was siding with the integrationists. And uh, they just had horrible things to say about this wonderful man who was the president of the United States. In the meantime, President Kennedy, as he was uh, going back and forth in the White House, he would stop and talk to me almost every day that I would see him. He would always ask me a question about Mayor Daly or how did I like Washington, D.C., or some question. And so I happened to be standing out of, in front of the Oval Office one day. I was on guard, stationed right in front of the door of the Oval Office. A cabinet meeting was breaking up. And Hubert Humphrey and Barry Goldwater came out of the Oval Office door. They left the door kind of cracked, and as I reached in to close the Oval Office door, the president saw me, and he said, Mr. Bowling, I see you made it here. And he came out, he, uh, he had been talking to the Attorney General Robert, his brother. And he came out, he shook my hand again, said, let me introduce you to the, the, the who's here. And he introduced me to Hubert Humphrey. We shook hands for almost a minute. Hubert Humphrey was a real politician from Minnesota, and we just shook hands, and I thought he would he would never turn my hand to lose. Barry Goldwater was the opposite. He refused to touch my hand. However, that that was okay. I was just elated that the president had recognized me, and he told me to follow him. So we went about. He introduced me to Evelyn Lincoln. He introduced me to many other workers there, and and some of the uh, uh, Andrew Hatcher, who had become the first African American uh, assistant press secretary. He was also making history, and we came to. Uh, Pierre Solinger, who was the press secretary for President Kennedy. Pierre, he called Pierre and said, Pierre, I want you to meet somebody. Pierre came over and uh, he says, I want to meet you to meet Abraham Bolden. Say, so he's the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service. And I, I was almost floored to tears with, with that remark that he made. But that was, um, very difficult time for me because the agents surrounding the president were talking about him in vicious terms and they had lost focus on what their duties really were and during that same time we were getting a lot of threats in the office back in Chicago on the president's life and here he was surrounded by agents who some of them hated him, hated what he stood for, hated black people, hated uh, everybody except himself. And that was the climate on the White House detail. Now, what disturbed me more than anything else was when we went to Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and I bring this out in my book, President Kennedy introduced me to all the members of his family. 
And he also introduced me to several of the dignitaries who came to visit him while he was in Hansport, Massachusetts. Now, during the time that we were in Hansport, I overheard a conversation of agents who said that if an assassination attempt were made on President Kennedy, that they would not react, that they would let it happen, because he deserved to die because of his stand on integration policies, and that he was destroying the country. And I was mortified at hearing that. I, I couldn't believe my ears that agents who were responsible and given the job by the Congress of the United States of America to protect the presidency of the United States of America and agents who were saying that they would not protect the president if an assassination attempt were made. Well... When we got back to Washington, D.C. on July the 5th of 1961, I went straight into the chief of the United States Secret Service office, whose name was U.E. Bauman. And I told Mr. Bauman directly that the president would be assassinated unless the Secret Service took a new direction. I explained to him that the president's life was in deep trouble. I named the agents that who were in the discussion. Some of those agents were on the follow-up automobile when the president was indeed assassinated. And a couple of them, there were two of them who were on my shift, I work with, who were in that discussion. And when the president was assassinated, in Dallas, Texas, they made no effort whatsoever to do their jobs. There was one agent from Miami, Florida. He was assigned to investigate an assassination plot against the president after it was found out that their two conspirators were talking on the telephone about how they were going to assassinate the president from a tall building using a rifle with a telescopic sight. The Secret Service knew about this conversation because we had an informant within the organization and we had tapped the telephone of this man, Miltier, the agent who investigated the that uh, conversation also was an agent who went to Houston, Texas on November the 21st in order to do a, a pre-scan investigation for the President Kennedy who was to go to Houston, Texas after he left Dallas, Texas. This agent came through Chicago on his way back to Miami, Florida, after failing to follow up the investigation in Miami, Florida, 
stopped in the Chicago office of the Secret Service, and if he's alive today, he knows that I'm telling the truth, and said that the President of the United States should be killed. This was an agent of the United States Secret Service, and anybody who want to doubt my word, let them make an investigation. We have a lot of researchers who are interested in the assassination of the president. All they have to do is see what agent did the advance work for the president in Houston, Texas, track his movements to Chicago, Illinois, and they can identify that agent themselves. I don't want to give out his name right now. But it was the same agent who did the advance work for the Houston visit of President Kennedy that came through the Chicago office and said that the President Kennedy should be killed. Now that was the attitude of this agent. Now, I asked Mr. Bauman after I had explained to him what I had heard and how the agents felt about President Kennedy, I asked to be transferred back to Chicago as a field agent because while we were still in Hannesport, Massachusetts, one of the special agents in charges of the Secret Service, after we had come from the Kennedy compound, we were seated in the place where we were staying, watching TV, watching the news, and this special agent in charge, and his name was Harvey Henderson, looked at me and says, Bolden, and when I said what, he says, I want to tell you something, and don't you ever forget it. And this is in my book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza. You a nigger. You were born a nigger. You're going to die a nigger. You'll never be anything else but a nigger, so act like one. That's what a special agent in charge told me to my face, looking at me and had nerve enough to draw back his coat that he was wearing to reveal his weapon. So under those circumstances, I asked to be transferred back to Chicago and be relieved, be relieved of my duties on the White House detail. Now when I came back to Chicago, I made a specific effort to advise a special agent in charge in Chicago who blew it off Maurice G. Martineau blew it off. And in the meantime, we're getting all of these threats about highly organized organizations, the Cuban DRE, other organizations, Miltier and his right-wing group, Ku Klux Klan back group. We were getting information that these people were scheming to assassinate the president and they were following in four specific cities that they were following the president, that they were monitoring the president's movement. One was Tampa, Florida. 
The second was Miami, Florida. The third was Chicago, Illinois. The fourth was Dallas, Texas. There were teams of riflemen and conspirators who were following the president, tracking him, trying to get an opportunity <clears throat> to assassinate the president of the United States. And the Secret Service had this information. We knew, I knew that the higher officials had to know much more than I knew about it. Now, we were sitting in the office in October of 1963. A call came in from a person who said she was the landlady of a rooming house and that in the process of cleaning up the room, she had discovered four rifles with telescopic sights attached. We received that information from the FBI. The Secret Service office, Mr. Martinau, who was special agent in charge, he wanted to blow it off. He said, oh, the lady's crazy, nobody's, you, you know, it just seems like they were lackadaisical about the president's life. They didn't care. And so after I had upbraided the special agent in charge because of his attitude about the protecting of President Kennedy and because of his reluctance to take it seriously, I knew I was putting my neck on under the guillotine, but somebody had to stand up. And I had an affinity with President Kennedy and I had a, an affinity for the American people because that was our job was to protect the presidency of the United States of America and that's all that I was thinking about at the time Kennedy I love but the democracy had to be protected that's what I thought now, when they made an investigation of these uh, Cubans, there were two Cubans who were in Chicago, and they had rented this room, and they were being visited by two Europeans who were not of Cuban abstract. It seems as if that these people who were visiting these two Cubans were actually the controllers of the Cubans who were camped at this rooming house. The Secret Service started an investigation of the matter because President Kennedy was due to come to Chicago on November the 2nd of 1963. They blew the investigation and let these armed assassins, I call them, get away. If I can interrupt you, uh, Mr. Bolden, I, I, I just want to tell the audience, in his book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza, this part, I mean, I, I laughed. I laughed out loud when I was reading about how um, one of the agents blew the surveillance um, on this. I mean, you're writing about this just uh, 
is fabulous. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just I, I thought uh, I should point out in your book again the echo from Dealey Plaza. Our guest Abraham Bolden, when he writes about this in his book, it's it's really a, a colorful tale, uh, a colorful accounting, I should say, of what happened. Go ahead, sir. Now, as I bring out in in the book that you just mentioned. I was very suspicious of the activities of the Secret Service, so what I did, although they did not let me take part of the investigation, I came home and I listened to what they were doing over my two-way radio of a squad car that I had use of at my house. And I listened to them on a two-way radio. They blew the investigation when one of the agents who was on the surveillance in the alley behind the house, his rooming house, his name was J. Lodge Stocks, one of the agents, drove past two of the suspects as they were loading something in the back of the car, which I believe were the rifles. And as he drove right past the car, you know, Alice not as wide as a street. He did not have his mic turned down, and the message from home base, that's what we call headquarters, was, do you see them? Do you know where they are? And, of course, these guys were alerted right away that this, this this had to be a cop car. They, they were under surveillance. So they jumped in the car and they took off and we lost them. But a day after that, they did arrest one person. He claimed that he had no idea and was not involved in any attempt to assassinate the President of the United States. And you probably know that person from the echo from Dealey Plaza. His name was Vali. He claimed that he was an ex-CIA agent and he claimed that he actually like the President of the United States. However, in the trunk of his car, he had a rifle with a telescopic sight. He had explosives in the trunk of his car. He had everything that it would take. And he worked along the route that the motorcade was supposed to take when the President came to Chicago on November the 11th, uh, the 2nd. Over 1963, he had a job that overlooked the expressway, just like Lee Oswald had a job that overlooked the, the same expressway, the expressway, but the expressway here is what we call now the Kinnick Expressway, and Vali worked in a building where he would have had the same type of shot that would be similar to that of the sixth floor of the school book depository. Now, the Chicago police arrested Vali, took him to the Secret Service office. 
and they interviewed Bali and turned him over to the Chicago police. After that time, Bali was not charged with anything, not even a weapons charge. He disappeared. We don't know what happened to him. I think he's probably dead now. But he was released without charge. I'm going to stop you right there, uh, Mr. Bolden. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there because we're approaching the break here at the top of the hour. Folks, you just heard Mr. Abraham Bolden, who's our guest. Again, the first African-American Secret Service agent and the first African-American Secret Service agent who served on the presidential protection detail under President Kennedy, described to you the exact template used... That was in Chicago now, the exact template that appeared in Dallas, Texas. This was on November, uh, earlier in November, I think November 2nd, he said, uh, of course, uh, and of course November 22nd was in Dallas. But four cities, Tampa, Miami, Chicago, Dallas, assassination teams, you're hearing it. This is a rich piece of history. Abraham Bolden is history. And I mean American history and a true American patriot. And I want to thank, publicly thank Bill McIntosh from Ocaso Media. Bill McIntosh, thank you. Thank you. You're a class act. Thank you so much. Bill McIntosh, Ocaso Media, for assisting us in arranging this interview, arranging this interview. We're going to be right back with Abraham Bolden. Stay right where you're at. If I could uh, sit down and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or a glass of water, whatever it might be, with each and every one of you listening right now, I would love to do that. I really would. I'm not, I'm not a huggy person, you know, a hug-hug type person. I'll give you a fist bump. How's that? Seriously, uh, th- thank you, each and every one of you, for, for hanging with with. Uh, hanging in there with us and, and for listening to this program. And I really hope at the end of the day, at the end of the broadcast, each and every one of you leave more edified with more information, more more informed and more inspired than when you arrived. And if, if that's the case, then mission accomplished. I, I, I really think that. You know, I, I'm, I, I just... Uh, I really am a, I'm so thankful today. I'm thankful to, to our listeners, to each and every one of you. I'm thankful to each and every one of you who have supported us, whether it's by way of a, a note in the mail, we read them all, or an email, we read them all. A prayer, we feel those. Or, or your financial support, we certainly appreciate those as well, so we can keep the lights on and Eric fed and uh no seriously so we can so we can meet expenses and we want to say thank you I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart and and I and I truly mean that 
And you know, we're all going through uh, challenges in, in one way or another. I, and I'm convinced of this. As we, as we enter into 2017, the, the challenges that we're going through, um, are substantial. It's not, no, 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 it's not about Donald Trump. No, I'm talking about, uh, we're, we're seeing this world change, are we not? And this is something our next guest is going to be talking about. Let me ask everyone out there, have you heard of Vessel News? No? Yes? Vessel News. How about this? V-E-S-S-E-L. That's V. Victor, E. Edward, S. Sam, S. Sam, E. Edward, L. Lima, Vessel News. How about VesselNews.io? Have you heard about that? Well, if you haven't, you've come to the right place. And even if you have, you've come to the right place. Vessel News is an up-and-coming, very popular, very effective news website. If you go to, I love this, you go to their, their About Us, actually, I'm going to say his, Josh Kaplan, if you go to his About Us, two words, two words that are my, my favorite words too, unafraid and inspired. Vessel News is a different kind of news destination. Redefining the right-wing media narrative by combining America's most transformative phenomena, anti-establishment, conservative politics, and technological innovation. Vessel News is a lightning bolt for exposing the leftist agenda who seek to steal our freedom of speech. Oh, man, have you got that right? Folks, you know, okay, you know I've been blowing gaskets all week about that. Our right to bear arms, that's right. And refuse to call by name the enemies of our way of life. Radical Islamic terrorists. Amen, amen, and amen. And, and I'll tell you, the man behind Vessel News, when John sent me some information, a picture, as a matter of fact, okay, uh, of Josh Kaplan. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Vessel News. Uh, playing chess with, um, uh, with the, uh, who, who's the Chia pet head of North Korea? What is that guy? Kim Jong-un, right? Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, uh, he wasn't playing chess with Kim Jong-un. But no, he, he actually, um, yeah, he, he actually, he actually went to North Korea. Okay. And not with, uh, that basketball player, not with that guy. No, I, I think, I think Josh jettisoned out of a, uh, back of a 727 or something, B-52. Anyway, uh, it's just, it's just a fun story. Go to vesselnews.io. Um, he is an up and, well, he's, I shouldn't say up and coming. He's, he's a formidable news source. And if, if this website is not on your favorites list, put it on right now. Vesselnews.io. Josh, did I do you well? Did I do, do I do okay introducing you? That was, that was absolutely incredible. I mean, I could, I could go now. That was just <laughs> unbelievable. Thank you so much for having me. Well, well, th- well thanks for, thanks for, um, Thanks for agreeing to be in our program. Uh, John, the program director, and I were talking about you and about Vessel News and just about all the things you're doing and have done. And 
And uh, I finally said, man, i got to get him on because our, our listeners will appreciate the, 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 first of all, youth but wisdom. Okay. Uh, now I'm not, I'm not flattering you here. I'm just, I'm just, uh, my observations. You are young, vibrant, but man, unafraid and inspired. You got that right. You're kicking butt, taking names. You've got a great website. You're, uh, putting together some news that, that others won't touch. You're on top of everything. And, um, I gotta tell you, man, uh, it's one of my new favorite websites. So, Anyway, having said all of that, uh, where, do, where do we start, my, my man? Where, where do we start here? Well, I think we should we should begin um, as to how I came across uh, the idea of launching Vessel News, cool. uh, which yeah, that, that that to me has been you know something that's been so many years in the making. I'm, uh, I'm 28 years old, but this has actually been a, a process that has started um, around the time that Barack Obama was running for the presidency. Okay. Um, you you had alluded to in your introduction that Vessel News, you correctly stated so, uh, is attempting to bring forth news that is unafraid and inspired. And when I saw the rise of Barack Obama and the entire world looking at him in not only high political terms, but almost a prophetic uh, understanding of him, uh, I wanted to, in an unafraid manner, learn more about who this individual was. And as I dug deeper into his past, it was evident to me that not only should Barack Obama not become president, um, but that this is somebody that espouses an ideology that is so dangerous uh, and so pervasive throughout Western civilization that anybody with a voice and a platform should fight against the ideas put forth not only by him, but the rest of the globalist cabal. And this has been a process for close to, it, you know, it's going on eight years now. Uh, that he's been the president. Um, so the common thread uh, throughout my career, which has spanned uh, both in university, grad school, uh, private equity, real estate, uh, and then is stint in the food and beverage industry, uh, politics, the intersection of media and politics has been a place that I've always operated on. And I came to a point one day uh, where I was looking at, like everybody else, the election, and we were at a fork in the road, a tipping point. And where, you know, not only where is America going to go politically, but where is the entire world uh, going to be heading? And I wanted to not only contribute my voice individually, but to be able to give inspiring and unafraid news to millions of people. So I launched Vessel News uh, knowing that we were facing a battle that many believed, even Donald Trump didn't believe up until the very moment that he actually got confirmation that he was going to win. Um, and that's why this, this new site has come into manifestation because 
we were facing such an incredible battle, I had to draw my own metaphorical line in the sand uh, and launch this website. Mm, okay. You, you mentioned, uh, and you've done a lot, by the way. Uh, I'm going to say in the last ten years, we'll just we'll just call it a decade. You've done a lot and exposed a lot through your website, through your independent research. And folks, and hopefully this is okay to say, you're based out of Canada. Can I say yes. that? I just yes. did. So too bad. Okay. All right. Well, the exact uh, of Montreal. Okay. Let's give. Yes. Yeah. Montreal. As a matter of fact. Uh, uh, I remember going up to Montreal, um, made a wrong turn at uh, New York State, and then anyway, um, but nice area. But 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 you're you're into. I mean, you're in a sense your news, although is world news. I can see the um, uh, the emphasis. There's there's a dramatic emphasis on the West and in particular the United States and U.S. Canada and, and such. But but having said that. Let me go back to Obama here. You mentioned something um, that I just want to touch base with you on this because I think it kind of starts in earnest with Obama. Um, and, and I've seen some of your your uh, articles pointing to this. Uh, we don't, uh, Josh. We don't know who in the hell Obama really is, do we? I mean, seriously. Even no. after eight years, we don't know. No. How is that even possible? Well, the decades of psychological conditioning by the mainstream media, uh, the uh, feminization of masculinity. Um, if you amalgamate those two um, phenomena that are trending quite high right now, it leads somebody to not only not even want to address some of these facts that to so many of us in our movement are untrue, but there are so many that don't even have the backbone to even once they see the facts laid out in front of them to even accept them. You know, I mean, we don't necessarily need to drill uh, too much into this, but this whole Russian uh, hacking scandal. Right. The report just came out by an aggregate of agencies, and today uh, was one of the most jargonistic, glossed over, you know, goppity gooped uh, reports um, that have ever been published by the federal government. And yet, if you were to show it to the average individual walking down the street and ask them what their true feelings were on this, this is not even something that they could, you know psychologically wrap their head around because the truth is just too difficult to bear. And you know what, Josh? I, I th And ladies and gentlemen, I do believe, Josh, you just described what VesselNews.io really is. It's it's that truth filter. It is... Um, it's... And I'll let you describe Truth News the way, or Truth News, I'll let you describe Vessel dot, or VesselNews.io the way you'd like, but when I read what you've collected and post upon your, uh, on your website, it, you do it in such a way where it, it really breaks through this, this delusional, the, 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 or the fog of delusion and misinformation. For example, 
your your article here, WikiLeaks mocks U.S. intel report having on Russia hacking for having poor sourcing and no evidence. You know, compare that to, for example, when I opened the program earlier, I talked about uh, uh, Clapper testifying before a Senate committee uh, and just being absolutely well. It, it was. It was I'm, I'm going to put the uh, video up. It, it was just. It was just an amazing thing to watch. But you break through that, and, and you're right. If you, if you ask somebody on the street about about this issue, they're clueless, even if they think they have the correct information. And that's kind of what vessel to me. That's what vesselnews.io represents. Is that uh, unvarnished? Here it is, bare bones truth. This is what the truth is. Maybe this is what you're being told, but the bottom line, here's the evidence. Is that, was that fair to say? It, that is, that is the, um, we'll say that's, you know, if there's two quadrants, uh, that's, that is one half of it. And the, the other half of it, which, um, is in my mind still a relatively new phenomenon that I'm trying to, to put forward, uh, into the media narrative. Uh, is that right now, uh, programs like yours and, and, and many others, whether it be the Infowars and the Breitbarts and the, and the Drudge Reports, those have, you know, all, you know, I, to me, the, uh, getting Donald Trump elected, I, I think was one of the most incredible team efforts, team sport efforts that I have ever seen in my lifetime, right? Every small blogger in their apartment, every person on Reddit, uh, every person out there at a rally, if you aggregate all of those efforts, I truly do believe that it's the efforts of the people that put forth uh, Donald Trump uh, to win the presidency. And so in terms of truth-telling from a cultural and political aspect, I think that we're in the Vessel News is in the same area. Now, when I use the word unafraid, or inspired, I'm actually talking about something that all those websites, many of those websites that I've just discussed, do not do. And what I mean by that is, is when I amalgamate both technological innovation with anti-establishment conservative politics, what I'm doing is, is I'm bringing forth and trying to accentuate and publicize praise and laud all of the technological innovation out of Silicon Valley, out of New York, out of Detroit, throughout the country, uh, whether that be artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, whether that be self-driving cars, and all of these technologies have been put under a very intense microscope by the right uh, because of privacy issues and because of the fact that automation will likely wipe out large swarms of our labor force. But where I actually see things differently from, I believe, most of the other uh, publications is that I actually champion uh, these technologies as a uh, one of the most clearest indications that the foundation of the Constitution is actually manifesting. Um, to me, Silicon Valley is the most conservative in many ways uh, the most conservative city in America. And, and I say that because the entrepreneurial spirit, the self-development that is imbued within that small locality, um, 
are so uh, are, is so overlapping with the founding fathers and and the principles that are uh, enshrined in in the Constitution and. We're we're very worried that we're moving towards what I call you know what what is known as the singularity, which is that artificial intelligence is growing so powerful and so intelligent that it's going to supersede anything that human beings could possibly comprehend, let alone take on. And so we see that we're trending towards this area. And much like the Founding Fathers saw that the British monarch was trending towards encroaching more and more on the, you know, colonies' rights, what Vessel News is trying to do is trying to tell the rights, don't be afraid of technology. Embrace technology, because the very tools that, that you and I are exchanging ideas and having, you know, an amazing conversation, we're utilizing technology. You're posting all of your wonderful interviews and radio shows on YouTube, and then you're promoting it on Facebook and Twitter. And I have a problem with many of the things that the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jack Dorseys of the world do, but the technologies that they've created, which in many ways are supersede anything that we've done in the 50s out of Detroit and building cars and so on and so forth, um, we have to uh, try to embrace uh, some of the wonderful things that technology has afforded us and not run away from it. Because if we want to maintain our privacy level, if we want to avoid having the singularity occur where artificial intelligence supersedes our own, we have to engage in technology. It's it's not something to run from. It's, it's not something to fear. It's actually something that we should better uh, educate uh, ourselves on and, and, and embrace uh, to a much higher degree than we're seeing. So that's why our content... Uh, we're not afraid to post a story about Donald Trump and then under it showcase a product by Apple, um, which you might not see on the average uh, conservative website. Um, and that's how oh. we're and that's how we're unafraid, and that's how I think that that we're that we're um, that we're inspired. Okay, and, and it, it concern well not concerns me. It surprises me, I suppose a little bit about you're describing the Silicon Valley conservative, okay, which I can understand from an entrepreneurial kind of perspective, but to me what I see taking place, and, and, and please help me and correct me, guide me in my understanding of this, you, you have this spirit, this entre, the spirit of, of, of being an innovator, uh, a business owner, and then it it develops, and of course, at the root, we'll say that the product is the technology which we all use, and we here use that technology. But then it kind of whips back, and in in whipping back, it 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 it's almost like a mechanism of punishment where where we're um in in our attempt to to. Uh, expose the truth, the people behind the power, behind the veil. We are being subjected to a censorship like we've never been before. How, how do you comport that with, I mean, I mean, what's that about? And that's a great question. That is the first question that's answered, uh, asked of me when I, <clears throat> when I make a bold claim, like, you know, Silicon Valley is the most conservative in many ways to an American. That, you know, when I preface that and I say in many ways, because, uh, I believe that you and I are, are in agreement, um, when we see the likes of Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, um, 
changing the trending spelling words. So yesterday, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter kidnapping was trending for only a short period of time, and uh, many pointed out that kidnapping was spelled incorrectly. So in terms of censorship, um, we're, we're in agreement. Uh, this is a huge, this is a huge concern. Um, now, where I look at this and I say, okay, we understand that Twitter is this incredible tool that billions of people have been utilizing to spread a variety of different messages. And the center of power that controls this apparatus is censoring a subset of individuals in a way in which we have never seen in the modern era. And I say to myself, well, rather than say, darn, you know, Twitter is bad news and technology is could be um, not only pervasive but self-censoring by the powers that operate it. I want to inspire people to take a look at Twitter and say, that's a powerful tool. I want to create my own Twitter. I want to enable people to have their own platforms. Um, and I don't know if that's possible if we continue to put downward pressure on the uh, on the people and the companies that operate these powerful technologies because it's come to a point, and this is my personal uh, purview of this, that the technology itself and the people and the companies that operate the technology have almost become indistinguishable. And this is what deeply concerns me because Twitter, if you remove Jack Dorsey, which personally has aligned himself with the leader of, of Black Lives Matter, uh, recently just um, <clears throat> Microsoft had a ad where they included transgenderism and Black Lives Matter and a variety of, of other uh, progressive themes in one of their advertisements for Christmas. And I take a look at this and I say, well, you know, Bill Gates might have progressive views and might be a globalist, but gosh, the things he makes are so powerful. And let's never forget that, um, that the things that Microsoft and Twitter and Facebook make are so powerful for us to get our messages out. And that's why I showcase the technologies uh, that these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs put out so that I could inspire other people to build their own platforms. And a perfect example of which is Cody Wilson. Cody Wilson, to me, um, who uh, is the pioneer of 3D printing guns, um, he is he is operating at the epicenter of both technology uh, and politics uh, by by coming out with his own 3D printed weaponry and and it's the, those types of people that understand that we're under attack but the very things that we're under attack by we need the technology to fight back that's who I want to inspire with Vessel News. So VesselNews.io. What you're, what you're doing, if I understand this correctly, you could, perhaps you could say, uh, you're taking the, uh, you're, you're, you're taking the good that is the product of the technology and exploiting it in such a way, and, and I use that word exploiting deliberately, um, but, but to exploit it for the, for, for good, for truth as opposed to 
anything else. Is that a fair statement? You know what? What I would what I would say is that I think that you're you're thinking about it uh, correctly, and and maybe I would I would think about it. I think you you said it in a more succinct way. I might go on with with a few more syllables, but um, the way that I think about it is is uh, I'm actually taking back. Um, I believe that Vessel News is taking back many of the innovations that are coming out of Silicon Valley uh, because. Had they not operate, uh, had they not manifested within the context of a capitalist system, uh, I, I don't see. I didn't see a Twitter come out in, in the Soviet Union. Oh, um, okay, okay. You know, I, I, all right. So, I, yeah, I, so to me, culturally, the essence of Silicon Valley, which manifests in the terms of goods and services, is a deeply, deeply conservative thing. I mean, Ben Franklin is is the, is like the first. He is the Steve Jobs of his time, or I should say that that Steve Jobs is the Ben Franklin of his era. Josh, hold that thought. We're up against the bottom of the hour break. I apologize for the abrupt uh, departure here. Hold that thought. We're going to be right back with Josh Kaplan, VesselNews.io. Fascinating. Stay right where you're at. to this final segment of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Very interesting conversation. Our guest is Josh Kaplan. He's the man behind, the founder and editor of VesselNews.io. Unafraid, inspired, that's the tagline, we'll say. And it's interesting, it was right before the break, and I apologize for the abrupt uh, break there, or the abruptness there. Kind of snuck up on uh, both Eric the Tech and I. Um, VesselNews.io. At Vessel News, we believe today's entrepreneurs and the founding fathers are kindred spirits. And and this is what uh, Josh was talking about right before the break. Thinking in terms of platforms and code, it was the founding fathers who brought up about one of the most disruptive events in human history and programmed America with some of the most important lines of code ever written, hyphen the Constitution. And when you think about that, in in context, to me that, that he's absolutely right, and then of course he goes on stating that it's a one man operation run by editor in chief uh, Josh Josh Kaplan, and, and and thank you Josh for that clarification because uh, where I was uh, succinct but all too brief, you did expand upon it as necessary. So I, I, th- I think people, so, so Vessel News is kind of a, um, or how, how would you, I mean, it's, VesselNews.io is, is a different kind of a drudge report in a sense. Or it, do you want to smack me upside the head for even saying that? <laughs> no, I, mean, I want to give you, I know you said you're not a, you're not big on hugs. I want to give you a big hug though. There's okay. no higher compliment. Well, you know, I'm looking at this, and it's it, it, the depth. It, it's there's some depth here, and there's a um, honestly, there's a uh, um, not, not just the depth, but a breadth about VesselNews.io, and I, and I would urge everyone to bookmark VesselNews.io because it, it is a, 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 a place for news. Um, all right, I I, I don't necessarily want to waste your time and, and get bogged down in, in minutia. 
Let me just ask you, uh, in today's environment, sir, we're seeing censorship, in my view, and we touched upon it earlier, but we're seeing, in my view, we're seeing censorship that's, that's based on, um, changing the, quote, narrative. And I don't like even saying that phrase, but changing the narrative in order to hide the misdeeds of the global people in power. Um, are, 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 you're kind of, uh, constructing a workaround on this, right? I mean, through how you do things, in a sense. Or, or what can you say about censorship? Well, personally, Vessel News, uh, you know, I could say we've been censored. Um, Vessel News has been, so Vessel News has existed, uh, I'll touch on this briefly, uh, about six months. So the website has been, it is six months old. I launched it myself in, uh, in July. Uh, it's a one-man operation. Uh, I'm curating content uh, from 7 a.m. till 1 a.m. at night. I'm doing this seven days a week, and there's nobody nobody else on the operation. Um, so this has been a completely organic uh, process that I've leveraged uh, all means of technology to try to get out, uh, one of them being Reddit. Now, I want to specifically point out that uh, the Donald subreddit uh, which to me is the most, one of the most important mind hives on the internet, which is just an aggregate of some of the funniest, most intelligent, most dedicated, um, many patriots, but also true uh, champions of Western civilization, people from all over the world uh, are contributing uh, comments and uh, news articles and, and their own analysis on the subreddit, uh, the Donald. And our stuff has has been on there on a daily basis. Uh, people are submitting our links and they're getting upvoted to the front page and many people are, are, are finding out about Vessel News that way. And I constantly get emails telling me that they've been uh, shadow banned uh, from other uh, subreddit groups because they posted our links. So we've actually been a little bit cross because they've been banned from Reddit because they posted, uh, you know, some of our, some of our links. And, we, we may have curated that story from the Washington Post or from Breitbart, um, but yet there seems to be a, a problem with the contents that is led for their either suspension and or ban. I've, I've been banned uh, numerous times, uh, specifically posting a link uh, about Dove Katz, who is a, a high-level engineer working at Oculus, which is a Facebook-owned virtual reality company, he was recently busted for soliciting sex from an underage girl, 15 years old. I posted this link uh, to Reddit and was swiftly uh, suspended uh, for numerous days. Uh, I also then had someone else post the same link, and then they were uh, suspended. So there are specific... Uh, We'll say um, subjects that you know ought not make its way to Reddit. They'll get in trouble, um, and our site has has suffered uh, censorship on Reddit. And the other place is Facebook. I get people that email me and 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 ask me. They say, Josh, uh, why why is Facebook asking me uh, if I want to unlike your page? So they'll <laughs> really they'll, they'll say we've noticed that you've liked X, Y, and Z pages. It'll be myself and you know two other companies. Um, if you haven't, you know, if you don't remember liking these these uh, pages, we'll unlike them for you. And I've gotten numerous emails about that, so I've experienced it in some some ways. 
Yeah, ooh, I, I have two on my personal, and, and I don't quite understand. I mean, well, I do understand, but it, it's just weird to see that. And, and uh, you, interesting point. Um, so, so, but, but yeah, so, so you're fighting that censorship uh, as well. And, and I would point out, folks, vessel.io, or vesselnews.io. I'm so sorry about that. Vesselnews.io. It, it's it's really. Um, uh, again, the equivalent, if not uh, a deeper and wider Drudge Report kind of uh, source for news, and that's my uh, 58 years worth of. I mean, uh, look, I'm I'm a, I'm a dinosaur, okay, when it comes to this kind of stuff, but this is how I see it. And uh, uh, but anyway, um, Josh, I, I know that John had talked to you about you know different subjects. We've got, I don't know, maybe uh, about 20 minutes or so. Where do you want to go with it, with this conversation? Uh, you want to talk about what the next four years under Trump is going to look like? Or what's on your heart, on your mind? What would you like to talk about? We've got, uh, uh, you know, really tens of thousands of people listening right now uh, who know you either by reputation, by, as you say, by through Reddit or other areas. But... Uh, I'm just going to kind of give you the floor, and, and you tell me what you'd like to, you know, where you'd like to direct the conversation. I think uh, talking about new media and how Donald Trump is using new forms of media to get his message out, uh, how that's going to affect the political landscape and guys like you and I who are fighting against the globalists, who are trying to take on the international financial cabal that are constantly putting downward pressure on us. So I, I like to talk about new media and Donald Trump and, and where that where that leaves um, organizations like us. Perfect. Because that is... I, I've been driving, uh, or I've been really discussing or skirting around that issue sometimes hitting it square square in the you know nose or uh, uh, otherwise uh, uh you know skirting around it uh, uh all week so let's get into it because this is to me one of the more important news stories that we can talk about you start <laughs> well one of the things that i've been thinking about is the mainstream media's incessant negativity surrounding Donald Trump's utilization of Twitter. I've thought about this, and um, where my thoughts have, have led me uh, is that the media is not upset about Donald Trump's, the content of Donald Trump's tweets, um, but rather they're upset because the platform has caused many in the media to become, not only feel, but to become obsolete. Donald Trump no longer needs to go to uh, CNN or MSNBC or uh, the New York Times and espouse whatever views he has. He can now speak directly to the people. And the now the the um, the network effect of that is now you you've got all of them the mainstream media along with the alternative media then reacting to what he has to say. So. As opposed to being, we'll say, the originators, the content creators, the mainstream media uh, is now being turned into by Donald Trump as mere disseminators of information, which is a fundamental shift in how they operate. Before they were the the uh, 
will, you know, will say to you know, the gatekeepers of information and truth, uh, and now they've been subjected uh, to being mere orators or messengers. Um, and the way they're they're then describing Donald Trump's tweets, um, which you know we don't yeah, the way they're editorializing it is obviously uh, <clears throat> very different as to how the average person thinks about it. So that that's the thing that I've been I've been thinking about is is his tweets are fundamentally changing the nature of how the mainstream media sees itself, how it operates, and, and what its true value is, and how that's plummeting uh, in this time, in, you know, in the present day. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, because in my office today, um, I was, I, I had Fox News on, and I was surprised at the amount of time they allotted to, not the, as you said, not the content of, of the Trump tweets, we'll call them, but just the mere fact that he's using and how dare he use uh, Twitter uh, as a, a president-elect, uh, it, 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 it just kind of it took me aback a little bit to, to hear the animus that was behind it, this description of the president-elect using this alternative media, including Twitter. And then the discussion also touched on his use of uh, non-conventional means, particularly YouTube, for example. You know, how could he possibly circumvent the process and use YouTube? So, they're, they're, are they running? Are they afraid? The, the media? Are they afraid of losing this this control of the narrative, so to speak? They 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 are they are concerned. And what, what's amazing, I think. Again, I, I, I love to go, I, I'm trying to go deep down here and, and, and cut the issue at the root, is, is usually when um, groups of individuals get uh, squawkish against one another, it's usually because the stakes are so low. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, is many in the, in the conservative movement uh, during the election, minus the never-Trumpers, were, were very... Um, We'll say everybody coalesced around Trump, and now that Trump has been elected, many people in the quote unquote alt right and the new right have been have been squabbling because quote unquote the stakes are so low. It's actually something Mike Cernovich had said. I thought that was uh, great insight. Um, what I'm seeing now is the media squabbling over the low stakes. Uh, the the fact that he uses Twitter, uh, it's the contents. That don't bother them, but it's the fact that he's expressing his views in 140 characters. So they're denigrating the character count. If Donald Trump wrote out an entire note of, you know, 2,000, 3,000 characters, posted it on Facebook as a note, he would get a different response. Notice that when his uh, campaign puts out an official a transition statement, there's nowhere near as much controversy because it's a late, late piece. So they denigrate the number of characters. They try to use size as uh, as a negative factor. The second thing is they'll they'll poke on his grammar. They'll they'll insult the fact that he speaks he, he doesn't use the King's English when he's when he's tweeting. He actually the way he tweets, the way he he formulates uh, his tweets is almost in a, in a speaking way. Uh, and they denigrate that. So the stakes are so low 
uh, in terms of what they're trying to peck at, uh, but never the content, which is always the most important, which could move markets, which sends Boeing and Toyota and leading organization stocks to drop. Uh, they don't necessarily talk about that as much as the other things that I spoke about just now. Mm. Okay, and that's an interesting observation. And I have to echo your observations as well. Um, it's, it's, again, I saw that just today. Um, very well put on, on, on your on your end, and it's a, a very concise uh, evaluation of what I saw in this discussion. And, and I, I'm not even—I I think it's Shepard Smith and others, but but nonetheless. So, so okay, all right. So, so where do you see this going then? Um, if, if he, because this is obviously a Trump administration is going to be something we have never seen before, using the very tools, the innovations that you spoke of earlier, um, to, 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 to the to the benefits. So, so where, where do you see all of this headed? I mean, where are we headed uh, under Donald Trump? The end game for the globalists is to have Donald Trump banned from Twitter. This is the end game. Now, one of the things that I've tried to do on Vessel News, which to the average uh, reader may or may not be so interesting, but if if, if somebody takes a, it becomes a um, an avid reader of Vessel News, and we always get this type of feedback. They say Josh has these weird idiosyncrasies where he, he he's posting about this one particular subject over and over and over again um, with great you know propensity. And I don't really see this. You know, maybe it's featured prominently on the website or in terms of frequency. Um, and the media, whether it be Salon, Slate, uh, The Ringer, or various uh, media analysts calling for Donald Trump to be banned from Twitter, I will always post that story. No questions asked. Anybody in the media calling for Donald Trump to be banned I will put from Twitter, I will post that story in a millisecond because that is the end game. I want my readers to know when, you know, when no other uh, media outlet has called it, that I've been seeing this for a long time. That's the end game because as I had spoken before, Donald Trump is diminishing the value of the mainstream media in epic proportions by speaking directly to the people. And they're trying to use the same um, tactics uh, of trying to denigrate uh, certain characteristics of his tweets in which they would have people calling them uh, racist or bigoted, so on and so forth, always going at the character assassination standpoint. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm always talking about that. That's, that's the end. Man, that, to, to me, that's fascinating. I, I cannot sit here and, and think, envision the, uh, Donald Trump as a president of the United States being banned from Twitter I mean, the only thing, my response is, are you serious? You know, um, and, I, and I truly believe you are, and I truly believe, and I agree, that would uh, certainly be their end game. But that said, where does that leave us? Where would that leave us? And where does it stop? Well, where where that leaves us um, or the, the need um, is again one of the things that we try to do at that I try to do at Vessel News is try to inspire 
people to become technologists and coders and engineers and so on and so forth. So there already are platforms like Gab AI, which is the, um, we'll say the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the alternative to Twitter. And then there's alternatives to, to Reddit. So there are still platforms that exist uh, that Donald Trump could use if he gets, if he gets banned. And there would be a massive exodus, um, to, you know, from Twitter onto these platforms. So he does have options. Uh, and, and that does leave us with some breathing room. Um, but that still is not a website or platforms that are necessarily stable and as established as Twitter. So where that leaves us is is guys that are listening to this program that say, look, what, what these two are talking about right now is really scary. I want to come up with a way that if Twitter bans Donald Trump, uh, that he could still get his message out. So in a way... Um, there's still some work to be done, perhaps, in that area. Uh, I, I totally agree. And, and that's been a conversation, Josh, uh, that we've been having here. We are looking, um, as always, there's always that possibility where we will get booted from YouTube or we'll get booted from whatever. I mean, name whatever it is, you know, that we, we have no control over. So we are attempting to... Uh, mitigate the, the potential fallout from that by, in, by establishing something else or by, by a plan B, we'll say. And that's what I think. So you're inspiring that. That's one of your main purposes is to inspire others to take a look and to say, hey, come up with something different, right? Is that, is that what I'm hearing? That's absolutely correct. Okay. And that's what we need to do. I mean, when we were faced with this kind of uh, opposition. We, we've got to do that. And, and you're a big part of that too. Understanding the framework and understanding all of the things that, that I don't understand at my, at my older age. Um, you understand boatloads more than I could ever understand. Uh, so, so you are working to that end as well. Yes. Mm. That okay. is my, that is my overarching objective. Okay. I, I gotta ask you here, we only have a few more minutes left of the program. I can't believe how quickly this has gone. There's a photograph, and, and if you don't want to talk about it, I, I understand, but this is a photograph of you, uh, with a, uh, North Vietnamese, uh, soldier. Uh, you, you gotta explain this to me. What, what did you do? Uh, did you parachute into North, North Korea? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish that would have been incredible. Um, so North Korea has always been, uh, on my, on my radar, uh, as a place to want to go. I know that sounds completely crazy, but it, but again, I've, I've always had this, and I'm sure you're this way too. You know, we, we've got, I, I think people in, in the, we'll say the truth telling movement, um, or those that are awake, um, have always operated on the paradigm of, of contrarianism. And I've heard so many terrible things being said about North Korea, and it's not that I didn't believe it, but I said, I have to see it for myself. Not to, not because I didn't believe the things that were being said, but I've just got to see a society that operates in this fashion. I mean, this is not to be, this is an experience. So, uh, it's always been on my radar. Um, I had, uh, some spare time, uh, during the Christmas season, and it was the first time, 
in North Korea's history that they were allowing Westerners to come into North Korea during the New Year's time frame. So I booked my ticket, spent a few days in Beijing, uh, flew from Beijing to Pyongyang uh, on uh, on uh, New Year's uh, on New Year's. I spent New Year's Eve there. I uh, had a had one of the most incredible uh, parties that I had ever attended, and and I'll say, don't believe what you read about North Korean fireworks. I am convinced that they spent. 15% to 20 of their GDP on the fireworks. They went on, they went on for what I thought was an eternity. Um, so I spent a few days, yeah, I spent a few days in North Korea traveling the country, went to the DMZ, uh, area, was able to pose for a number of photos with a North Korean soldier. Uh, it was, of course, a sanitized trip, uh, so we didn't get to see some of the darker aspects of the country, but we got to see, we got to go to bowling alleys and restaurants and uh, circuses and, and all sorts of different shows, and it was uh, really an inexplicable uh, experience. Unbelievable. My goodness. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, the reason I brought this up, because when I saw the picture, um, the, the the first the, the first question I had was, would you wake up one morning and decide, hey, you know what, I'm gonna just I'm just gonna spend a few days in North Korea. What the heck, you know? Um, however, I do understand the contrarian uh, approach and wanting to see things for yourself. Uh, what was your greatest takeaway from that? Aside from, I mean, what was your greatest uh, takeaway that uh, uh, from from your trip? Uh, that, that you could share. God, I'm lucky. <laughs> that's yeah, that's amen. my takeaway. God, am I lucky? And do we have incredible opportunity to build and create and self-develop in a free society? And boy, is that fading at a speed in which even those in the truth-telling movement can't even believe. That was my. That was my. Big takeaway. And you know what, Josh? I think you just summarized everything that we've been talking about in the, in that one assessment. Yes, we collectively are lucky, but yes, we are seeing that uh, we are experiencing this erosion, this this decline. And we need to, and we need people like yourself who are doing this, stepping in and saying, you know what, we have to stop this, and we have to, um, we have to, we have to make the changes ourselves, and we we got to take control, and we've got to. So, I mean, that to me summarizes uh, what you stand for and what you've been doing. In other words, that's a way to compliment you in your enterprise, but realizing. That number one, we're lucky, and number two, how quickly we could lose what we've got. It's it's just so important to understand. And even the people in the so-called truth movement, you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and we are facing dangers here. I think in the next, in the short term, and in the long term. Real quick, here we got about a minute left. What's your biggest concern as the founder of VesselNews.io as you view the landscape of the news? What's your biggest concern? Immediate concern or 
My, my biggest concern, and the reason why I founded Vessel News, is because I understand that uh, metaphors and comparisons are not always so neat. But I see the challenge that we're facing today against censorship, uh, automation, uh, and the lack of uh, basic economic um, uh, empowerment ability is comparable to what the founding fathers faced. Uh, right now, we're facing huge tectonic changes. We're seeing massive forces putting downward pressure on us. And unlike the founding fathers, today I feel like in some ways we're treading backwards. We're we're taking a look at technology and we're afraid of it. We're, we're afraid of automation, AI, and virtual reality, and we don't know how we could tackle it uh, and to be able to lead our lives in a positive, free way without these technologies being so pervasive. Um, so this is, to me, the biggest challenge, uh, is trying to shift uh, our thought process and to embrace technology as our, as merely a platform um, and, and not an actual force in which is trending against us. That's the biggest challenge. Well, and, and that, uh, folks, to me, uh, and there it is. And I'll just say, period, there it is. And, and it's, I, I think we could take a lesson from Josh Kaplan, the man behind Vessel, news.io uh, a, a, certainly a, a website everyone should visit on a daily basis your news aggregation compilation and um, the way you have collected and assembled and presented is uh, not just admirable but very helpful to all independent researchers and for that we thank you and I hope you do come back on again uh, we could talk about other issues in depth you're a fascinating young man, and in your website, equally fascinating and equally, uh, uh, man, I'm I'm a proponent of your your website, and I just appreciate your time. I appreciate all you do, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, thank you, brother. Folks, that was Joshua Kaplan, founder and editor in chief of VesselNews.io. Talk about interesting, and talking about a great guy, and and somebody with the. Again, unafraid and inspired. That sums it up. I want to thank each and every one of you for a great week. God bless every one of you. Watch HagmanReport.com. There are going to be some, I think there are going to be some surprises this weekend. I'll be around. God bless. 